All right, killers of the flower moon, everyone. Let me preface by saying that anyone complaining about the runtime, uh, fuck off. There have been longer, longer movies made about less interesting and more boring topics that were more poorly executed than this, so shut up. You can sit around scrolling for six straight hours without getting up to pee or get a drink on TikTok, but you can't watch a three and a half hour long movie without throwing a tantrum and acting like your rights have been revoked. I don't know what to tell you. Keep the double standards at home. But the film itself uh, was a masterstroke. So, I have not read the book. If anyone who has, please let me know. Because I want to know how faithful it was to the book, um, having not read it, and probably not having time to read it in the near future. But the main thing about this film that I was noticing throughout was that for the first time ever, I think it made me hate um, Robert De Niro and DiCaprio in the same movie. I don't know if that's ever happened before, but they were both terrible. Um, And the the thing about the story too, is that it was relying on true historical events to a, um, very large degree so a lot of it was more like watching um a long news story about um like an inside investigative reporter um capturing and showcasing corruption uh, murder and hatred and at the end it kind of hit the nail on the head pretty explicitly where it literally ends with a true crime radio broadcast of people telling the story and what happened after the fallout for all the the main players and Scorsese had a cameo himself where he came up and um, read what happened to some of the victims in character of course as um, one of the radio actors One of the main themes from the film that I was gathering um, was that cowards don't speak. So, the very first scene of the movie is basically De Niro sitting DiCaprio down and telling him everything that's going to unfold, how it's going to unfold, and these conversations reoccurred throughout the film where basically he would just kind of stand there or sit there and start in a place of relative innuendo, but then just rapidly devolve into explicitly just saying the quiet part out loud of what the plan is, what the steps are to accomplish that plan. And, um, later on, eventually how he thinks they're going to get away with it. But, Every time he would sit down and tell him uh, DiCaprio these things, it was so matter-of-factly like, well, you know, the um, once this person dies, that money moves here. And it's just right up in your face. Um, yeah, he, um, it was so obvious that an idiot could get it. And... 
DiCaprio played the coward. He wanted what he wanted. He loved his family, sure, but he also gave zero qualms about destroying it to get some money. Because as he said in the film, I think maybe twice, maybe more, that money was the number one thing he loved and cared about, even over his wife and kids. And the only very slight redemption he sees is that throughout the film, he begins to love his family more. But not enough to to stop. Um, he poisoned his wife because De Niro told him to. He planned to steal her money because De Niro told him to. Hell, he married her because De Niro told him to. And she was warned about him in the beginning, but saw more innocence than her friends did. And as she lost everyone, like her whole family's dropping dead around her, and foul play being obvious, the worse it got the more she would suspect him. And eventually, once he was arrested and testifying, she would call him out directly to his face. She never played the role of a coward, and she protested everything that she thought was messed up. And she fought to the best of her ability to keep her people alive, but there's only so much you can do, especially when you're being poisoned by someone that you trust. And it was it was insane. It was it was soul crushing, but it was also very intense, and it was difficult to feel the runtime, especially through the second half of the film. As the more the conspiracy developed and the more insane things got, you kept thinking that it has to reach a boiling point where something's got to give. And eventually, it was DiCaprio's sick wife, who he was poisoning, that went to Washington and got people on this and became his entire undoing and destroyed the entire conspiracy. While the coward, he ran, he tried to hide, he tried to lie, he tried to dodge, deflect, he tried to avoid, and he would cave to pretty much anyone who put pressure on him. So... When the feds put pressure on him, he was immediately ready to sing. And then when his uncle's lawyers, so De Niro's lawyers, sat him down in a room before he testified, he was immediately caving to their demands. Every time De Niro told him what horrible thing he's going to do next, who he's going to kill, who he's going to beat to get off of this story in this case, uh, whose house that he needs to burn down, um, which private investigator he needs to murder, um, how much poison he needs to give to his wife, and how often he should do it. He just caved. He completely caved. Not even a word of... Um, not even a word back. Not a retort. Nothing. So that was, um, that was one of the main themes that I noticed was... The silence of cowards. And how much easier it is for... Cowardly scum to choose money over... Loyalty, honor, 
love and decency and what any lengths crooks will go to get it if they want it, especially if they see it as easy money. And one of the other main themes of the film was the religious brainwashing. So, of course, um, there was this, quote-unquote, the family. And there was this cult who believed that um, Jesus was white and white Christians deserved to rule the world and all that nonsense, yada, yada, and the... um, Freemasons and whatever, all that bullshit. So that seemed to be another aspect. How easy it is for religious zealots and extremists to use any of their stupid, dusty old books to justify killing people. Time and time again. The religious zealots are always much more dangerous. I would literally rather take a materialistic who's obsessed with nothing but money than to take someone who believes that they're ordained by some um, supernatural boogeyman hovering around in the sky to make sure that people only of their specific skin color gets a certain amount of wealth and power um, and territory and concentration of arms and everything. And um, that their quote-unquote type of people should be um, completely exempt from any horrible things that they've done and shouldn't be investigated because the investigation itself is um, a blight, or they, you know, it's blasphemy, um, treason against their um, quote-unquote creator. So they're much more dangerous, because as we can see, they're willing to go to more insane lengths than anyone else to accomplish whatever bullshit they want done. They will strap bombs themselves and blow them up themselves up. They will um, crash planes into buildings. They will wage genocides and um, they will justify lopping off the genitals of children and adults in the name of their lunatic holy crusade. Um, They will justify stealing things, destroying things, burning down libraries, ancient treasure troves of knowledge. Um, They will justify stoning, not the fun kind, scientists in the public square for literally just explaining things that they have objectively discovered in reality. You know, that place where the rest of us live, not in these um, fairy tale, insane cults in their little temples and their monasteries and everything. So it would be very nice, I think, if... In these insane organized religions had never formed and stupid people from a long time ago had not attempted to claim that they knew the answers to the questions that they could not answer instead of, you know, the, the alternative where you say, I don't know, and then you go on a quest to find out instead of saying, well, I don't know, but I'm going to tell people that I know because then I can find a way to control them and they can... I can make them do what I want and I can get a lot of money in the process because if there's one thing that is true about God in every single religion, just about, except for one or two pacifist ones, is that he always needs money. It's weird. He always needs money. 
In all of his infinite power, he can't seem to give his constituents or his mouthpieces, as they so claim to be, um, enough to get by and, and do the job. They always have to, to beg and demand and um, get away with not having to pay taxes. It's very funny and interesting how the all-powerful can't cough up a few bucks here and there for the people that claim to speak on his behalf and claim to hear from him and claim to know what he wants and all this other horseshit. So it's very interesting to see that kind of gross self-entitlement and self-aggrandizement and narcissism in the world today, yes, but especially in um, these cases where they just literally feel so superior by completely bogus ordination. Um, nobody was at the ceremony because it was never held. But they just believe that. They just think that by dint of um, co-opting this ancient Middle Eastern superstition from a couple thousand years ago, that they're better than other people while they're murdering and raping and killing and stealing. It's, um, it would be irony if it was just dramatic, but it's not. So any day, any day, I would take an evil atheist over a good religious person because there's a world of difference between the two. And at least with the former, I know what I'm dealing with. And at least, usually at least, unlike the latter, it's not trying to justify his or her actions by some bullshit moral authority that doesn't exist and that no one in reality is going to concede to. And the sound design stood out to me especially. It was very, very well done. A lot of the sound was mostly um, actual noises and sounds and voices. The soundtrack is not built from the typical huge Hollywood orchestra. So most of the sound is coming from characters and voices and chants and singing and drums and um, you know, gunshots and, and the sounds of the world around them and the cars and everything. And there were some points where the sound got overwhelmingly loud in the theater by design, which was um, a good wake-up call for any of those um, snoozing people who can't handle three hours of a film but can do 12 straight hours without budging of TikTok. Um, but no, the sound, when it was loud, it made sense. When it was quiet, it made sense. And when it was intimate, it made sense. And when it was non-intimate, it made sense. And the environment just felt so alive because rather than drowning it out with this big um, set of orchestras or a choir or something, you had the um, the world and the people around it tell the story. And there were some parts where the dialogue would just be everything. Or most of the film, the dialogue was everything throughout. So... That was very well done. That was very intriguing. It kept people on the edge of their seats, I think. And um, it let the story be told using the ways of, of cinema rather than trying to merely emotionally 
beg people to feel a certain way as a lot of modern Hollywood soundtracks need to do because the acting isn't there. Um, the direction isn't there. The setup isn't there. So they're just kind of playing sad music to beg you to feel bad for Ant-Man for two seconds before he inevitably doesn't die and doesn't lose anything and doesn't have very anything serious going on. So it's very, very, um, spectacular overall as a work of, of art. And I've seen a lot of people trying to rate it as far as Scorsese's work goes. And I think it's probably his, um, third best film. I would put it behind Wolf of Wall Street and The Departed, uh, for a lot of reasons, but I, I can review those at a later date, but it was far from mediocre or his worst work. It was very intriguing and, um, his attention to the detail and his willingness to just beat you over the head with how horrible the people involved in the conspiracy were, was admirable and very interesting. Um, it was fearless. And that was probably the, um, the best aspect from the filmmaker side is you have someone fearless making a story showcasing a story of cowards as one of the themes was so it was a nice dichotomy and it was nice to see him cameo himself and kind of step up onto the, the radio show that was going on at the end and kind of say it just bluntly right out himself much the way that DiCaprio couldn't just say what he was thinking or stand up to De Niro and much in the similar way to De Niro when he just bluntly said what horrible things DiCaprio was going to do to his family so that De Niro would get money. It was wild. So I would say that overall the film will probably get a bad rap for the, the runtime. Probably lack of action sequences will be criticized, but the story and the themes and what was going on in the execution were all fantastic. It's definitely one of the top films of the year. There weren't a lot of great films this year, so it's very nice to see something um, rocket up high up on the list. I don't think it quite reaches the heights of Oppenheimer overall, but it also it, I don't think it digs in the depths of a shared experience that a lot of people can recognize and identify with, but um, wasn't the point of Killers of the Flower Moon at all. It was an adaptation, and it's a very specific story from a very specific set of horrific actions. When Oppenheimer's third act kind of branched out and brought everyone in to show how very consequential and lofty things can involve everyone and showcases how everyone has to live under a certain horrible regime and status quo and the way things are done and 
oppressive systems. But the comparisons to the side is definitely in the top five films of the year that I've I've seen. And I'm looking forward to what he has next. Because Scorsese's been on a roll recently. Uh, this is this has been some insane run he's on. And I want to see what else he can do. And if he sticks to adaptations. Very interested to see which one he could pick next. Because I'm sure not a ton of people would have guessed this one five, ten years ago. When they were guessing what kind of story he would go with next or where he would be taking his career in the future. So the unpredictability at this age is um, valuable for a filmmaker, especially in an industry that's completely co-opted and run by predictability and banking on uh, the 15th sequel of the 88th series to have 15 sequels and begging people to come back for the same old thing over and over again so you get the same money but without doing anything new with cinema or doing anything new with storytelling or doing anything new with the technology. I mean, for, for all James Cameron's faults, at least he's always trying to do something that's never been done before. So is Scorsese. You can't say the same about Kevin Feige and what he's doing with Marvel. You can't say the same for Kathleen Kennedy and the way she's running Star Wars into the ground and under it and the way she ruined Indiana Jones. I mean, you just can't say the same for Comcast. Um, Disney, Warner Brothers, uh, who are all trying to make these cookie-cutter, endless sequel franchises and find new ways to monetize people rather than tell great stories and let the cinema speak for itself. And Killers of the Flower Moon and Oppenheimer are both huge examples of what happens when the cinema takes precedent and the cinema comes first and the story comes first rather than... um, worrying about the commercial aspects of the bankability of it and instead of trying to reflexively make something that the critics will like or as the scandal earlier in the year proved paying the critics to give them good Rotten Tomato scores or as Disney does um, they have these press junkets when they screen their movies and they get the critics drunk it's always easier to like movies more when you're when you're drunk and you can't formulate your thoughts properly so the fact that both of these films came out in the same year is a, a pretty good sign for cinema. And um, they came they come the same year as a, a D&D movie made by fans and, and largely powered by animatronics and uh, practical effects and um, witty humor over the same lame jokes from Marvel and the ugly pastiche of um, CGI and video game filmmaking. So it's... It's a good sign, and hopefully the trends continue. I'm very much looking forward to um, Ridley Scott's Napoleon to close the year out. Um, Auteurs are making a lot of fantastic cinema this year, so hopefully the trend continues, and I only have great things to say uh, about Napoleon this Thanksgiving. That's the hope. And after this masterpiece, uh, everyone can look forward to my Five Nights at Freddy's review, which will be geared towards uh, the furries, I suppose. Um, Right now, it's one of the highest grossing horror movies of all time, so with a clock in my mouth, I will go watch that and review it. But anyway, stay safe, everyone. Hopefully, if you're able to read the book or watch the film or both, I would highly suggest you do it and encourage it. Um, 
I give this one two thumbs up. It was absolutely fantastic. Um, don't listen to anyone saying it's too long or it needs an intermission. Don't ruin it. If you can, watch it in one sitting. It's not much longer than Wolf of Wall Street, and I know you all sat through that, so give it a shot. Um, it's incredible, and it's a true story. The least you could do is learn about the story by giving it a Google and just reading the the background material, the, the story it was based off of, um, or going through some chapters of the book if you can, uh, because it was absolutely haunting execution of a horrifying true story. So hopefully uh, cinema is on the rise and it comes back. And if it is in its death knell, at least some filmmakers are attempting to let it go out with a bang rather than a whimper before the streaming giants take over and turn everything into content rather than story. Sky's are sunny 